Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Begin reading in verse 1 and read down to verse 7. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching, the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Father, we're dependent on you to understand what's before us, not simply understand the meaning, but understand the significance and to have it impressed upon our lives and um, to walk in obedience to it. And so as we consider this passage this morning, we would ask that you would help us think clearly about what it says, help us think clearly about the implications for the life of our church and ministry here, and uh, may we uh, live in a way that upholds the truth and is unified and is careful to be obedient to everything we read in Scripture. So help us, we pray this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series this morning on um, church membership, and we're returning to this particular question that we began uh, a couple of weeks ago, and that was the question of who runs the church, or who has the responsibility for for leading and governing in the local church. And in answering this question, uh, we began by considering the congregation's role as the final human authority in the life of the church. And what we did was we unpacked various passages of Scripture that uh, sort of show us where the congregation used their authority. And we noticed that they exercised their authority in the life of the church in three ways. They defined uh, who their membership was through ad- adding people to membership and disciplining people from membership. They also uh, selected their leaders, their pastors, and their deacons, and we didn't consider this, but other representatives in the church as well. And then thirdly, we saw that they had the responsibility and used their authority to guard the gospel, 
Paul says, if anyone preaches another gospel to you other than the one I've preached, let him be a curse. And they have the, protect, the responsibility to protect and exercise their authority to remove false teachers from among them. And once we consider the various passages that sort of talk about where the church uses its authority, uh, we moved on to ask this question, what is the purpose of the congregation's authority? And we noted that this precious responsibility that the Lord has given the assembly was not given so much that they could make basic democratic decisions like the color of carpet and curtains, but rather the church should weigh in on matters that impact their ability to be a faithful gospel witness. And I won't rehearse what we said there, but that's what we we unpacked there. We also noted then that because of this weighty responsibility that the church as a whole has to, to govern its affairs, that it's important that the church practice careful membership and make sure they maintain a pure membership where the members are following after Christ. And once we considered the congregation's responsibility, we then moved into the responsibility that pastors have for leading in the church. And what's clear in the New Testament is that while the congregation has the ultimate and final authority, uh, that pastors also have the authority to preach to lead, to oversee, and to shepherd in the life of the church. And this leadership is something that is entrusted to them. It's entrusted to them by God. As Paul tells uh, Titus, uh, overseers as God's stewards should, be, should serve faithfully. But it's also uh, a, a, something that's been entrusted to them by the congregation. The congregation is entrusting uh, a great deal of what takes place to their leaders to, to shepherd and govern uh, in, in the life of the assembly, and, and ultimately they will be accountable uh, before God for how they pastored. Now, in unpacking this question of who runs the church, we had to grapple with these two realities. How does pastoral leadership mesh with the, the governing of the congregation? And what we noticed was that, that they have two different types of authority. We said that the congregation possesses what we call the authority of command and that pastors possess what we call the authority of counsel. And we won't go into unpacking these things. You can go back to the message from August 16th and listen to it again or if you're, if you're that interested. But, but that's what we said um, in describing the, how these two bodies relate together. But this morning, now in part three of this question... We come to the role of deacons in the life of the church. So where do deacons fit into this equation? Well, it's clear from Scripture that deacons are a, another office in the church and serving in their role in the church. But how is it that they relate? Well, as we consider the role of deacons, I want to begin um, by just clarifying and saying how appreciative I am of the deacons that currently serve and have served uh, in my time at Maranatha. Uh, The various men that have served have served so faithfully for our church. I think they often go unappreciated and unnoticed, and probably a lot of them would have it be that way. Uh, But I've learned so much from these men over the years, and I would just notify this, that the unity that we have had through the years is a tremendous blessing to our congregation. Okay, when there's division among leaders, uh, the congregation often feels that and ha- it has the ability to cripple the ministry from within. 
But when there's, when there's unity and, and a, a good spirit among those in leadership, then it serves both the pastors well and it serves the congregation well also. So I want to just make sure I express our, our thanks and appreciation for, for that relationship and how well we are served as a church body. Now, we always want to be evaluating the scriptures uh, to see if our practice of how we do church life matches with what we read in the scriptures. You remember what Luke said to the Berean believers uh, when, in, when they were presented with Paul's teaching? It says that they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so, which is an interesting statement because this was an apostle teaching these believers, and Luke commends this as a worthy practice. That even when an apostle was speaking, that they commended or that they had searched against what he was saying, searched the scriptures. And so for us to compare our practice this morning with what we find in the scriptures is always wise and beneficial. Now, surprisingly, the Bible does not say a great deal about deacons. There are primarily two passages that address deacons, and we've read them twice. We've read them already this morning. We read in our scripture reading uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and now we've just read Acts chapter 6, which is the passage we're going to consider this morning. There are a few other mentions of deacons, but really just in passing, like Philippians chapter 1, where, Paul's, where Paul writes to the, to the overseers and the deacons. Um, and that's, that's you know, just a passing comment about deacons. So there's not much that's said. But since this is the case, we want, to spend, uh, we want to give special attention to what the scriptures do say about the role of deacons in the life of the church. Now, if you're to trace the role of deacons through church history, you would find that there are some incredible stories of how deacons have served, but you would also find that there have been places where deacons have been misused in the life of the church. Commonly, they have been misused in two ways. The first way deacons have been misused in the life of the church is by elevating them to the role of pastors. Sometimes the thought is that they serve as a separate branch of authority to be a check and balance or to keep the pastors accountable. I remember when we first came to Maranatha, there was the, the, the dear old lady uh, whose husband had long since passed away, and, and uh, she... She was telling me about her husband in a previous church, how he served, and she said, he was a good deacon. She said, he stood up to the pastor. And I was, <laughs> I was like, well, I, I don't know what, the, I, in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't know what that statement means. Like, maybe the pastor needed someone to stand up to him, or maybe he was a real cantankerous deacon. I don't know, <laughs> I didn't know how to take that particular, particular comment. And I always wanted to ask, but I never had the courage to ask, and so, but it's, it's not an option now. I think we should recognize that in many places where deacons have become elevated to the role of pastors, it is usually downstream from some sort of emergency. Maybe they were left in a position where they had to scramble to fill a void of leadership, maybe because of a pastoral vacancy or because of a pastoral scandal. And many churches have a revolving door at the pastoral position, and it's only natural for authority to shift over to those who are there so faithfully and who are there the longest. And in many cases, these churches where deacons are, have been elevated to the role of pastor, these are, are godly individuals, but they've had to work in order to keep the church alive. But we should consider this. I think this is a, a really important point to, to mention this morning. 
when deacons function as pastors, who will function as deacons? So when that's the case, the congregation misses out on the blessing of both offices serving in the church as God has ordained. Now, the second way deacons have been misused throughout the church history is to have their role reduced to that of mere servants, as in their mere handymen or their number crunchers to help with the building or the budget. But I think the qualifications that we find both here in Acts 6 and in 1 Timothy chapter 3 give us an indication that their job is much more significant than just fixing a leaky toilet. It would seem that their role is, is vital in the life of the church. I think that's what we'll see in the scriptures this morning. So I think we'll see that they play an important role in the church when they're understood properly. They can be a tremendous blessing both to the pastors and to the membership of the church. So before we get into this, this, uh, this sermon this morning on deacons, I'll just remind you of the phrase that we, we've been using here. When answering this question, who runs the church, we said this, that a local church should be congregationally governed, pastor-led, and deacon-served, with each group fulfilling its role with godliness and humility. Now, as we come to this passage this morning in Acts 6, we want to notice four things. First of all, notice that there was a problem. There was a problem. Now, in the context of Acts chapter 6, the early church is, shall we say, they are rolling, okay? The New Testament church began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and they are growing, and we're growing at an amazingly rapid pace. So Acts 2.41 says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 2.47 says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being baptized. Acts 4.4 says, But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So this church is growing. And by all accounts that are recorded here, everything seems to be going well. There was unity, there was purpose, the members were meeting each other's needs, the gospel was advancing. I mean, this was the model of a perfect church. And even when we come to Acts chapter 6, we see the same thing. In fact, our passage is bookended by two positive statements about the growth of this church, right? Look at verse 1. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, okay, there's a positive statement at the beginning. Now, skip down to verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, right? So things are, are moving, things are happening with this church. This is, as I said, the perfect church. This is the kind of church we all want to be a part of, one that's vibrant, one that's growing, they're sharing community, they're evangelistic, without any problems or divisions. We want to be part of a church that described, like verse 1, where the disciples were increasing in number. But too often, our vision of church is met with a different expression in verse 1. A complaint arose. And that's what we find here in this church. There was a problem. It's easy for us to read verses 1 and 7 and conclude that the complaint that arose was no big deal to this, to this first church. 
especially because Luke bookends it with such positive news about the church growing. And we tend to think that this small issue was just a blip on the radar of an otherwise clear and bright day for the early church. But this young church, for this young church, it was the, a potential hurricane. All right, notice, that, notice this, that verse 7 is not a foregone conclusion. Okay? Verse 7 is not a foregone conclusion. Had the conflict been mishandled, the ending could have read something like this. And the word of God was compromised. And the disciples were divided among themselves. So Luke's description in verse 7 is a ringing declaration that disaster has been averted and fruitful ministry can now proceed unhindered. So we see that there was a problem in this church. And back to verse 1, it says, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, to understand this, we need to understand who the Hellenists were. Well, nearly all Jews during this time period spoke some Greek, but the Hellenist Jews spoke only Greek. They didn't know Hebrew, the mother tongue of the disciples in much of the early church. And the the Hellenists had made Jerusalem their home. Perhaps they came for Pentecost, heard the gospel, became part of the church, and decided to stay in that region. We're not exactly sure. But there was certainly racial and cultural distinctions and differences between them. And we see that the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of their food. Now, we know from Acts 2 and Acts 4 that the church did a tremendous job in looking after those in their church. Many sold their possessions and and gave to the poor, And this daily distribution was the means by which they provided for the needs of of those in their church. Now, we don't know how this worked, and, and we don't know why this specific group of Hellenistic widows was being neglected. The text doesn't tell us. It certainly wasn't the intent of the church to, to miss them, but as this church is growing at a rapid pace, and it's so large, we can see how a situation like this would happen where these individuals were easily overlooked. For the Hellenists, though, this was a big deal. And a complaint arose. Now, this might not seem like a big deal to you and to me, but this had the potential to derail the church and impede the progress of the gospel. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary, helpfully points out that this was the devil's third attack on the church in consecutive chapters. Right? If you just, you don't have to, to look, but if you follow the, 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 the chronology of the book of Acts, he, the devil begins with the attempt of, of, of persecution to derail the church. Right? But Peter says, no, we, we have to obey God rather than man. We're going to still continue to, we're still continue to speak. So persecution didn't derail the church, and and so Satan also tries to hinder the church through corruption, through Ananias and Sapphira, two individuals who try to appear more godly than they are, and they're deceitful. But but even that that only focused and sobered the church even more, and they continued to grow. And so now we have this third attempt of of the devil to, to distract the church from its primary ministry. Because anytime you have a, a complaining and a bickering church, 
filled with disunity, it will distract them from the mission that Christ has given them to make and mature disciples. Divided churches are distracted churches. Now, churches can be divided over all sorts of things, which translation should we use, what should we wear to the worship service, should we sing from a hymnal, or should we sing from a, a screen. Alistair Begg says the best when he says this, division often takes what is supposed to be peripheral and makes it central, and takes what's central and makes it peripheral. And that's a helpful warning for us to be sure. So disunity distracts the church from its mission. And this was certainly the case and the danger here in this passage. So there was first a problem. But we see secondly that there was a priority. There was a priority. Notice verses 2 through 4 again. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Okay, and we know the problem is real and not merely perceived because of the way the apostles respond. They summon the whole number of disciples. And it's important to notice the humility and the wisdom of the apostles in this situation. Right? As leaders, it's not easy to admit when things are not going well under your leadership. And notice that they don't say, well, this is no big deal. We've got to just keep moving on. These Hellenistic widows will get over it. They also don't flex their muscles and say, okay, do you guys know who we are? Like of all the people that the sovereign Lord could have appointed to be in this position, he chose us 11. All right, so have a little respect for us. Get off of our backs. But notice what they also don't say. They also, they don't say, we'll take care of it. Which is an important point to notice because instead, what they do is they come up with a solution to solve the problem in order to maintain the unity in the church. So the response is to summon the entire congregation and announce a plan. But before we get to the plan, I want you to notice the priority that drives the plan. Okay, consider the words of verse 2 again. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And it's saying it's not right. They simply mean it's not wise or it's not best that they neglect the priority of the word in order to serve widows in this way. Now, we should be clear that, that it wasn't because the disciples were superior or too good to minister in this way. They had learned from Jesus himself on the importance of service. This wasn't a matter of superiority, but a matter of priority. It was a greater priority that they devote themselves to the ministry of the Word. Now, there's some discussion as to whether Acts 6 is indeed the first deacon, and I think most people believe that it is. And the word deacon is not used as a, as a title in this passage, but when you get to the phrase serve tables in this passage, that, that's really the same word for deacon, deacon tables. So the apostles ministered the word, and this newly selected group of, of deacons served the widows. And what Acts 6 does is it sets something up of a pattern for the church today. Now, pastors are not apostles, 
But we see that the ministry of the Word continues in the pastoral position that the apostles had the example of setting in, 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 in the book of, of, book of Acts. So there's a correlation here between apostles and pastors and their priority and responsibility to minister the Word and shepherd the flock. So the pattern of the apostles here in Acts 6 is that, that they, would, they would devote themselves to the Word and the deacons would serve in the church. So pastors should devote themselves to the prayer and the ministry of the word. Well, well, why? Well, because the ministry of the word is how God has ordained that the church be strengthened and protected and that the people be sanctified and equipped for every good work. So because the ministry of the word is so important, God has given the church both pastors and deacons pastors to minister the word, and deacons to help free them up to minister the word. And the more pastors are freed up to minister the word, the better off the congregation will be. Okay, so there was a problem, there was a priority, and now we see there is a plan. There was a plan here in verses 3 through 6, and it was to have the congregation pick out from among themselves Seven godly men who could free up the apostles to minister the word. Now, notice a few things about this plan. First, notice that the congregation was to select the men for this, to serve in this capacity. So as, as born-again believers, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the congregation was competent to recognize godly men and to put them forward for service. Furthermore, this was a decision that would significantly impact the church's ability to be a gospel witness. So it was important that the church as a whole weigh in on on these matters. Their authority was necessary here. Notice, secondly, that the character of the men selected is of the utmost importance. This is spelled out for us even in the qualifications that we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where deacons are to be men of character and godliness. And in a moment, we're going to see why. But just notice here that that it's clear in Scripture that these are to be men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and of wisdom. So they weren't selected based on their administrative abilities, but for their godliness. And this is a principle that we would do well to remember. Now, thirdly, notice that in this passage, we catch a glimpse of what deacons are to do, okay? Now, as I already stated, the Bible does not say a lot about deacons, and especially it doesn't say much about the responsibilities of deacons. So uh, even a passage like 1 Timothy 3, 3, which is the, the clearest passage on deacons in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 3 focuses almost exclusively on the character qualifications and has almost nothing to say about their duties or their responsibilities. And perhaps that's the case because the scriptures leave it vague because churches have the freedom to use their deacons as they wish. And that may be the case, and there may be some truth in that. But it does seem from Acts chapter 6 that there are some principles for how deacons should function in the life of the church. So let's just notice two responsibilities that deacons would have, or two principles that we would take away from Acts 6 in terms of how deacons should serve. First of all, deacons should serve as shock absorbers. They should serve as shock absorbers. 
Okay, by definition, a shock absorber is a device intended to reduce the effect of a sudden shock. Now, if anyone knows about shock absorbers, it's we who drive on Michigan roads, right? Now, I know Governor Whitmer ran on the policy of no pothole left unfilled, but she still has a few, a few, a few potholes left to be, to be filled. And sometimes you'll hit one of these potholes and it just jars you because of how, because of how deep it, uh, it is. And, and shock absorbers, if you have good shocks, they are intended to lessen the impact of, uh, of these things. Well, this is how the office of deacon was designed to serve, to alleviate tension in the church. The early church was feeling the pressure of this conflict, and deacons were, were, were to serve to, to, to lessen the impact of this problem. And let me submit to you that the, the issue was important in the life of the church, not because food was so important, but because the unity of the church was so important. If, if food was the main issue, well, then anyone could have been chosen for the task. But because unity was so important, the church needed its godliest men to step in and to serve in this role. Since deacons work to preserve the unity of the church, that's why their character is of utmost importance. I like the way one author says it when he says this. Quarrelsome persons make poor deacons, for they only compound the kind of headaches deacons are meant to relieve. I think that's a helpful description for us to, to, to consider. So deacons serve as shock absorbers to preserve the unity of the church, but they, secondly, they serve as servants. I mean, the very word deacon means to serve or to help or to, to minister. But the question is, well, how did they serve? Well, in this passage, we see they're, they're, they're serving kind of in two ways or, or really one way, the other, two, sides of, two sides of a coin, we might say it like this, that they served the needs of the, the, the tangible needs of the congregation, but in doing so, they, they were serving the pastors so that they could devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the general principle we see from this text regarding deacons is that their role includes anything in the church's life that threatens to distract and derail pastors from their primary responsibility of teaching and preaching and, and shepherding. So when deacons serve in this way, they serve both the congregation and the pastors, and the congregation and the pastors both benefit greatly from the ministry of deacons. Now, putting these two together, shock absorbers and servants, I want to read a quote from Mark Dever on, on what he says just about selecting deacons and, and character. He says this, you don't want people serving as deacons who are unhappy with your church. The deacons should never be the ones who complain the loudest or jar the church with their actions or attitudes. Quite the opposite. You don't want to nominate deacons who don't recognize the importance of the ministry of preaching and teaching, but people who are anxious to protect it. More broadly, you want the most supportive people in the church to serve as deacons. So when you're considering who might serve as deacon, look for people with the gifts of encouragement. You know, when we're selecting individuals to serve in this capacity, we're asking the question, 
Well, who's already faithfully serving in the life of the church? We're not asking, who can we give a job to get them more involved? But rather, we're choosing from those who are already faithfully serving. Now, what should be the relationship between pastors and deacons? Because I already mentioned, one of the ways churches have misused deacons throughout church history is to elevate them to the level of pastoral authority so that they make pastoral decisions and, and keep the pastors accountable. And again, it's that this model often comes downstream from, from pastoral vacancies and scandals or some sort of emergency. But I think this is where it's important to start with what the Scriptures say and build on that foundation of what the Scriptures say. So in the New Testament, leadership and oversight is given to pastors, right? So they're referred to as overseers in 1 Timothy 3. They're referred to as leaders in Hebrews chapter 13. They're said to be over you in the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5. And deacons are not given this title or this task of oversight in the life of the church. Furthermore, members are told to honor and obey their pastors, those who spoke the word to them, but members are not commanded to submit to and obey deacons. Now, there will be times in the life of the church where submission to a deacon is as appropriate as they carry out their ministry, but the specific command to obey and submit to the leaders is to the the pastors. Furthermore, deacons will not give an account before God for the souls that are under their care. This is a weight that pastors carry as we see clearly in Hebrews 13, 17. So we should conclude this then, that pastors are responsible for leadership in the church and deacons serve to free them up to minister the word and shepherd God's people. But then that begs the question, well, who then holds the pastors accountable? If you know me, you know I need some accountability, okay? Okay. This is where I would suggest that a church is led best not by a single pastor, but by a plurality of pastors who collectively share the responsibility of shepherding God's people. Okay, the solution to the one man serving as pastor is not to elevate deacons to serve in that role, but to raise up other men who can share in the shepherding role. And that's why a couple weeks ago I said that, that the best model is a plurality of pastors who share the responsibility in, in preaching the word and caring for the congregation. Now, returning to the text in verse 5, we see that this plan pleased the whole gathering. The plan fulfilled its intended purpose to preserve the unity of the church. And we see in verse 6 that that once these individuals were selected, they laid their hands on them. In other words, a a sign that they they were being set apart for a specific task. And it says that they prayed over them and installed them in this position. So there was a problem. There was a priority. There was a plan. But then all of this led to progress. There was progress. Notice verse 7 again. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. 
So what had the potential to derail the church ended up being an opportunity for the gospel to progress. But it was only through the hard work of establishing deacons in this position that led to the conclusion of verse 7 that the church grew. As I said earlier, it wasn't a foregone conclusion, but it was by God's grace and the leadership of these apostles that led the church to succeed. This is how important the ministry of deacons are. They serve the congregation, both pastors and the congregation, so the pastors can faithfully and carefreely teach the word of God and the congregation can be served in tangible ways. So who runs the church? Well, a church should be congregationally governed, pastor-led, and deacon-served, with each group fulfilling their role with godliness and humility. And we want to work as a congregation to be obedient to what we see in the Scriptures and to see everything we see in the Scriptures played out among us as a group of people because we've seen when we don't, we are in danger of being distracted. And when we're distracted, we can't fulfill our mission effectively. And so deacons, by God's grace, serve a critical role in the life of the church. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for how you have structured the body of Christ to be organized and effective. And there are always hindrances and challenges that are presented. But Lord, help us to continue to come back to the authority of Scripture so that we might be effective and fruitful in, in our ministry and our service here. Lord, we're so thankful for the men who have served faithfully in these positions as deacons and how they have cared for our church. We ask that you would continue to raise up more men, both deacons and pastors, to serve our church faithfully and to minister to our congregation. Lord, by God's grace, would you please continue to help us be faithful to what we read in Scripture and be faithful to what you've called us to do. For it's in Christ that we pray. Amen.